Hello, and welcome to Healthline 3. I'm Carrie Simmons. Today we're talking with Dr. Chris Shelby and Dr. Weish Coleman of WKI Institute about cataract surgery and among other ways to help you see better. We'll be taking your calls throughout the show. As a reminder, please make sure you're in a quiet room with your TV turned down to a low volume when you call in so we can be sure and hear you and you can hear the doctors. The number to call is 318-219-4569 and you'll see it at the bottom of your screen throughout the show. Doctors, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having always us. Always good to be here. Oh, pleasure as always. You're like family, so we really That's love it when you're here, and it's always so informative. We love all of the calls people call in. You're so open to everything about not only cataracts, but just seeing better in general, and the things that sometimes you bring up things that people don't even know they don't know, so uh, taking the fear out of eye surgery, and we talked about that during the break, so we're going to kind of walk through what it really means to take care of your cataracts and go see about it. So you want to start with that, Dr. Coleman? Yeah, or any eye surgery. So everybody's a little bit anxious, you know, four LASIK cases this morning. And we do a lot of cataract surgery every week. The common experience is somebody is pretty nervous for the first eye and they're pretty excited about the second eye. You know, LASIK, we do both eyes the same day, but um, the universal experience is uh, almost universal. There's always outliers who say, yeah, I didn't like that very much. But like 99% of people say, I wish I'd done it sooner. That's that's a you you hear that from 99 percent of people that they say i wish i wouldn't have waited so long especially with lasik you know people who've been stuck in glasses and contacts since they were in grade school wait till they're 40 or so maybe older to have something done and get lasik when they finally have the money and have the time to do it and they say i wish i would have done that sooner i would have been nice to get more long-term benefits so i would encourage people who've been thinking about it if you're stuck in contacts or glasses and you want out of them there's a lot of different ways to do that now from you know the conventional things like LASIK for young people to refractive lens exchanges or cataract surgery in the older age group for, to in, uh, implantable contact lenses the ICLs for people who are extremely nearsighted or people who have been told that they're not a LASIK candidate in the past so basically every little piece of technology that gets added at this point is taking another small sliver of people a couple of percent that in the past we had to say we don't have anything for you there's no options keep wearing glasses or contacts it's to take a little group of that people and be able to offer them something to, to get them out of it so now that includes a large group of people you know maybe it's maybe it's 95 percent of people who are in glasses or contacts that there's a way out of it and, and what do you think of uh, some of the other reasons that people may wait too long do they not even know that you, you say, you know, and Dr. Shelby, we've talked about that too, they don't know how well they can see until they have this done. That a lot of people just go through life, it happens gradually and before they know it, it's all fogged up and they're not seeing very well and they just don't know that they can do something? Yeah, talking about with cataracts, it, very common, uh, you know, it's a slow progression over time. So, you know, cataracts aren't something you suddenly wake up with one day and you can't see and you say, oh, it's time for cataract surgery. Matter of fact, if you ever wake up one day and you can't see, you gotta come in and see us. <laughs> you know, it's like a glacier moving. It's a very slow, subtle change over time. And it's fascinating how many people will see in clinic whose vision is not near good enough to get their driver's license. And, and they'll argue with us like, yeah, it's a little bit blurry, but I still see fine. And so when we finally get that first eye done, they are amazed how much better they can see because it's all relative to what you're used to. And so these patients, their vision has been gradually decreasing over time uh, to the point where they really haven't recognized it. And usually both eyes will progress together uh, but what commonly happens is one eye begins to get worse than the other ones. So they begin to lose depth perception, things like that, and so it feels like their vision's really deteriorated. But it truly is amazing that first week or few days between the eyes, patients are doing this and this because the eye we've done, it's like the colors are real, everything's bright, they can see details 
there's suddenly their TV actually is HD and it's not all brown and grungy. And they compare it to the other eye, which is like a sepia, you know, everything's kind of brown and yellowish. And so it's just, it's usually not fear that keeps people back. It's the fact that, uh, you know, they still see okay. Mm -hmm. And they worry about cost and recovery. And a lot of that is on your website. There's financing. There's all kinds of ways to make it easier that people may think it's not for me for all kinds of reasons. Um, and you can go to the cataractsurgeons.com. It's got patient information. It's got all the other treatment services. So there's so much now to don't just automatically say this isn't for me, right? Yes, I'd say it's a good time to do something if you've been thinking about it. Yeah. You know, we always say that. Um, and I, I think that um, as the technology's gotten better, I think the reasons to be scared have gone down. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I have somebody cite to me every day in clinic almost that their grandfather or their mother or whatever had cataract surgery and they were in the hospital for six days and then they wore big thick Coke bottle glasses and that was probably before the days of even using intraocular lenses, which are the standard all over the developed world. You know, maybe in India, if you were getting cataract surgery and they were trying to do it for $3 instead of $4, they wouldn't put a lens in your eye. But that's very rare even in third world countries now. So the, the modern cataract surgery method is so far beyond what it was even just like 20 or 30 years ago that I think that some of the fear spills over from the way it used to be. It's not that way anymore. You know, right. we don't use stitches anymore, wounds self-seal. takes 10 minutes to do it and the outcome is, you know, great 99% of the time. Yeah, and just make an appointment. Just that, that was then, this is now. And if you are still kind of thinking that's just the way it's always been, I don't know about anything, come and find out. Right? right. Just and your teams, like speaking of making an appointment, you're not only great surgeons, you're also very busy clinicians yourself, but there's a team there. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that they will see you personally the first time, but you're involved in everything that goes on with everything. Let's talk about the whole team that's at your clinic. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have a, a lot of physician extenders, we have a lot of, of people in clinic that help us out, we have technicians. And so with Dr. Coleman and I being in the operating room most of the time, of course, somebody has to help fill in that, that clinic gap. And we have uh, a number of wonderful optometrists at, at our North Clinic, South Clinic, over at Piermont. Uh, we have some other uh, ophthalmologists in the, the Piermont Clinic. So there's always somebody there to be able to take a look at a patient, whether it be for a cataract evaluation or a LASIK evaluation, or even just, hey, I got a pink eye you know, I need an eye exam, you know, we can, we have somebody that can pretty much cover everything. Yeah, and there's all kinds of things, like I was talking about corneal abrasions, corneal cross-linking, what are those, I saw these on your website, what are those? You know, those are some of those other niche things to help people that don't have much of a good option, and corneal cross-linking is a specific one for people with keratoconus, where their, their eye, their cornea, the clear part of the front of the eye doesn't have the ability to maintain its structural integrity, and that's really a genetic defect that um, the collagen fibers aren't linked as tightly together as they should be. So in the past with, with keratoconus, you just had to wait till a cornea got bad enough that you couldn't see out of it, even with like a scleral or hard contact lens. And when you got to that point, you got a corneal transplant. And that was the only option. Well, cross-linking came around in Europe maybe 15 years ago where you basically drip vitamin A on the cornea. You soak it with vitamin A and then shine a UV light on it for 30 minutes. And that causes the collagen fibers to link together more tightly and halts the progression in keratoconus. So it reduces significantly the, the percentage of people with keratoconus that will ever need a corneal transplant, which is a big surgery. It works well for people who need it, but it, it's, it's one thing you'd like to avoid if you could. And it's an option for those people to avoid it. When in the past we would say, <clears throat> you know, come back in 10 years and get a corneal transplant. And that's all there, that's the only option I have for you. So now there's another option. Okay. And so you know, the same is true for some of the treatments we do like floaters. 
YAG vitreolysis, which is a laser to break floaters up. That was something 10 years ago that we said floaters are normal, live with them. You know, everybody <laughs> has them, so they are normal. But some people have floaters that come to rest right in their central visual axis, and you can measure the visual reduction. You can see the floater. Well, now we have the ability to laser that, break it up, move it out of the way of their central visual axis, and usually give them a significant improvement. I think the expectation is not that you're never going to have a floater again, but really you want to get people to where they have a floater that just goes by every now and then, and not one that blurs their vision on a, on a regular basis. So what is a floater actually, and what causes it? It's just debris in the, the middle part of the eye in the vitreous jelly. So mm -hmm. you know, you'd imagine you know, the, the eye is like a camera, so that light comes in, hits your cornea, then hits your lens, and then it goes through this space, which is the vitreous cavity. And of course, it's not just empty, uh, it's full of this gelatinous fluid. And theoretically, it should be perfectly clear. But everybody has a little debris that floats around in there. And so some patients can actually see the shadow that's cast by that debris, oh. which, you know, it floats, which is why we call it a floater. And a lot of people think a floater is like, oh, it's a fly that they see zip by or something like that. It's a dark spot. But you can have cloudy floaters that are kind of like this opaque cloud that moves by. That's a floater. Uh, it's just a different type of debris. And as we get older, that vitreous actually separates from the back part of the eye, which is a completely normal process. And that's the most common reason somebody who's over 50 suddenly sees new floaters. And so that's actually a reason somebody should come in uh, for us to see because a new floater is unusual. You know, your eye's a contained system, so nothing in, nothing out, unless we put in or take it out. So the floaters you had yesterday should be the same ones you have today and tomorrow. If you have new ones, that means something's going on. And so once we figure out that it's just that little vitreous detachment or it's just the normal floaters, then the vitreolysis is an option. And it actually does work very well. But like Dr. Coleman said, it's all management of expectations. We can't go make them go away completely, but we can make it 70, 80% better. Oh, okay. And can it be a sign of something more, more serious? Like yeah, you know, about? it could be a sign of a, a, a vitreous detachment, which everyone has, oh. where the vitreous jelly, which is, takes up the space in the back of the eye, uh, pulls away from your retina. Sometimes it tears a piece of retina, and oh. that leads to a retinal detachment. So that's why like flashes are especially worrisome, especially if they persist when your eyes are closed. That could be a sign of a retinal detachment. It's the reason if you have a new floater or several new ones that just came on, it's a good idea to get an exam just to make sure you don't have a tear or a hole. Because if you do have a tear or a hole in the peripheral retina, you can get a, we send you to a retina specialist. You know, every one of them in town is excellent. Um, and they can laser them down and basically seal the edge of the hole so that fluid can't get under it and cause a full retinal detachment. So that's like a real simple treatment that can prevent a disaster down the road. Okay, so there are specialists that really deal just with the retina yeah. and that kind of told different thing. Okay, and what about diabetic retinopathy? Is that something that you would also see in your office and might send someone to mm -hmm. a specialist with that too? Yeah, we see diabetic retinopathy and usually it's in, uh, obviously uncontrolled diabetes is very common. Mm -hmm. You know, but what happens is the, the high glucose levels damage little bitty blood vessels, you know, and so what your body does is it wants to create new blood vessels, which is great anywhere except for inside your eye because those new blood vessels will leak, they'll bleed, they can cause scarring, uh, then cause a retinal detachment. And so that's why it's important for diabetics to be seen once a year, regardless of how well their blood sugar is controlled. Because if diabetic retinopathy gets to a certain point, then the retina specialist can do lasers, injections, things like that to actually reduce that swelling and bleeding. 
I can imagine it seems like even year to year a lot can happen with the diabetic issues and things going on a lot in a year's time can happen to your vision. Yeah, especially if it's poorly controlled. Yeah. Usually it's pretty stable. You know, we see a lot of diabetics and follow them and usually follow them with photos and make sure it's not rapidly getting worse. Right. If it is, you can go to a retinal specialist. There's a lot of things to do now for diabetic retinopathy, mm -hmm. too. You, most of that stuff's buying you time to say, let's stop the eyes from getting worse while we get the blood sugar under control. Mm. Ultimately, if you don't achieve good blood sugar control, the end is probably the same, which is poor vision. But at least gives you some time to get the blood sugar under control. What happens a lot is people who are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, they don't end up having like diabetic ketoacidosis and ending up in the ER. Um, and finding out about it. They may have sugar that's high for 10 years. So a type 2 diabetic should have an eye exam immediately because they may have had it for a really long time and not known it. So you can have a lot of progression of retinopathy before you even knew you had diabetes. Um, so another reason to get an eye exam. Yeah, definitely. So we talk a lot about on Healthline 3 and all kinds of other doctors and different specialties how lifestyle really has a lot to do with your health overall. What about with your eyesight? And, and, and can you explain like why someone could be 90 years old and their eyesight is fantastic, they don't even have, have to use glasses or is that genetic, is it lifestyle, what are, what things that, do we know yet? What yeah, makes probably, one person see better than the other? Yeah, there's probably a, a little bit of a combination, you know, mm -hmm. I'm sure lifestyle uh, does have something to do with it, you know, and as far as cataract development, you know, of course, that's a, a reward for birthdays, you know, mm -hmm. so as you get older, you just have these normal changes in your lens, you know, and, and of course, the question is, well, if I change my diet or if I do this or that, will cataracts be prevented? We hope not, because then we'd be out of a job, you know, of course, but uh, the jury's still out. We don't know, but what we do know is we do see some patients in their 80s and 90s who still have their God-given lenses. They do have clinically significant cataracts, meaning that you know we can see it and they still see pretty well. And I think it's because the retina, their retina probably works better than the average 80, 90 year old. So their photoreceptors are still very sensitive to the light coming in. So they're still able to see uh, a lot better than maybe somebody else their own age whose retina doesn't quite work as well. Right, so interesting how that happens. We have a caller for you. Hi Gerald, what is your question? Uh, yes. Uh, what I was wondering, uh, there's a uh, uh, one of their competitors is advertising on TV that this new lens they have that uh, is adjustable after it's put in the eye, and I just wondered how does that compare with the panoptic lens that y'all put in? Man, we always get callers that <laughs> yeah. like we couldn't write a script for a better question <laughs> than that. Um, so the light adjustable lens has received a lot of advertisement lately. So. That is not new. It's been around for a long time. Um, and it hasn't been that great. It hasn't been super predictable. When you looked at the published outcomes, they were not as good as what we were achieving without being able to adjust it after the fact. So we, it's, but they've come out with a, a new version of it that is more accurate and more stable. So the short answer is we have it too. We have the light adjustable lens hardware. So the main thing you gotta have is a, is a, a specific wavelength laser which is a $150,000 piece of equipment that takes up part of a room. And um, that is what does the adjustment on the lens after the fact. So basically, you can put a lens in someone's eye. And the way cataract surgery works traditionally is we have a few thousand lenses in stock and we take a ton of measurements to try to figure out which lens is going to put your eye in perfect focus. What focusing power do you need after we take your natural lens out to leave your eye in perfect focus without glasses? 
So the light adjustable lens is a pretty cool idea because what it does is it says as long as you get pretty close, then you can come back and see how far you missed by by doing just a refraction, checking your prescription in the clinic, and then you can go enter that refraction into this laser and it actually adjusts the power of the lens. It changes the refractive index of the material in the lens slightly to put you in perfect focus after the fact, which is very cool. The, the reality, I think, is for most people with the detailed measurements that we have using the cataract surgery laser, doing an intraoperative measurement at the time of surgery, we hit about 98.7% of people that are basically in perfect focus without the need for glasses afterwards. That's pretty good. That's comparable with the, with, the, with the best published studies from the light adjustable lens, even being able to adjust it after the fact. The light adjustable lens is really a key technology for people that when we do preoperative measurements, when we do preoperative screening, we think they're at a high risk for a postoperative refractive error, for a miss after cataract surgery. And you can categorize those people. You sort of know who they are to start with. And really, it's people who've had RK surgery especially, people who may have early keratoconus and didn't know it, people who've had previous refractive surgery and they're difficult to measure because it was a really large correction at the time of the initial surgery. Those would be the main groups of people that we know you're at a higher probability than 1.3 to 1.5% chance of a refractive miss after surgery. And also, you may not be a candidate for LASIK after cataract surgery. That's sort of our backup plan. So that, you know, around 1% to 2% of people that have a refractive error, we'd come back and do LASIK. If we can't do LASIK on you for whatever reason, then you, a light adjustable lens would be an ideal solution. So that's primarily who we're using that in. That's why we don't make a lot of TV ads about it because I don't really think it's for everybody. And it, it's not a multifocal lens like the Panoptic, so you're not going to achieve as high, high of a level of glasses independence with the light adjustable lens in most cases. But if you're in, a, in that specific group that's likely to have a refractive error after cataract surgery, even using all the best measurement techniques, the light adjustable lens is a, is a great idea. In that way, you can do the surgery. We can come back in a month or so, check the prescription, and then make it perfect after the fact. Well, you answered my question when you said that uh, that it's still not the, the same quality as panoptic. I guess panoptic still the Cadillac of the lenses, say, right? From a glasses independent standpoint, so the light adjustable lens is what we would call a monofocal lens. So it's going to put you in right. focus either at distance or at near. You know, the way people are achieving glasses independence with it is something called monovision. That is not new. That's where you put one eye in focus at distance and one eye in focus up close. And so that's a trick, not everyone can tolerate it. And I really don't only do monovision on people who've already been doing that with contacts. And you just say, well, we're gonna leave you that way except for you don't have to wear the contacts anymore at the time of cataract surgery. So it depends on what you want. Also, you know, if you want maximum quality of distance vision, the light adjustable could be a good option. But I think still for most people, probably we would just go with a, tra with a traditional monofocal or torque lens for, for distance optimization and where readers to see up close. So I don't think there's anything magical with the optics of the light adjustable lens that, you know, if you want total glasses independence, I think from a data standpoint, if we look at the probability that you won't need glasses for any task, for the vast majority of people, the panoptics is the best option. I think there's a small subgroup of people. Maybe you're in that, maybe you're not. You need to take some measurements to figure it out. Uh, but it, we do have it available if you were one of those people that we thought it would be perfect for. Yeah, I've talked to you before. <laughs> it, 
had already had an appointment to come in and had it done, and I, I backed out at the last minute. Uh, I, you probably don't remember, my brother uh, had it done, and he's had great success with it, so I'm going to get it done, but now I guess I'll have to go through the whole battery of tests again. Well, probably not, probably not. You know, if we've already sort of set you up and then you bailed out, it's okay, better late than never. And, uh, you know, you're not the only one. I see people a year later, they're like, oh, I changed my mind, but now I'm back. You know, usually people show back up, so come back right. in. We don't have to do the whole deal again. Usually we can just do a quick exam. We may update your measurements because I want them to be as current as possible. And if you specifically have interest in the light adjustable, I'd look at all your measurements and say, is that the right thing for you or not? I mean, I think that's the key with all eye surgery, refractive surgery, is, is looking at your detailed measurements, what you want from an outcome standpoint in terms of glasses independence, and then choosing the correct thing for you. But we do have all, we do have every technology available, you know, basically in the world today at our disposal. So we'll I think we put you in the correct bucket and uh, and and do the thing that's best for you. All right. Well, you're uh, from the examination you've already done. I think I qualified for the same thing as the panoptics. So that's what I'm that's what I'm going to get. So. And I think if you come back in, make sure you tell, we say we talked on TV, let's look at your measurements close and make sure that the light adjustable is not a better option okay. for you. But for normal eyes who haven't had previous refractive surgery and we don't have a difficult time getting measurements, it's probably not the answer. All right, okay. Well, listen, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You answered my question. I was going to call you on the phone anyway, but since I was watching Channel 3 and they said you was going to be on to answer questions, I said, well, that's a good opportunity. So, I'm going uh, to sound like a politician now and say thank you for that question, <laughs> voter. That's, that is a good question. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. For, yeah, hopefully and, I'll see you uh, soon. Thanks. Come back in to any time. Okay, thanks, and thanks to Terry, too. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for calling. Good luck to you. Okay, thanks much. And this is a really good time to remind everyone too, even if you don't call in and you do call the doctors here and you go in for something, go ahead and say that you saw it on Healthline or you saw it on KTBS. So whether they talk to you or not, like we have Mary, Mary on the line right now. Hi, Mary, what is your question? Hi, I am calling to ask a question. I'm diabetic and unfortunately I have connective tissue disease too called Sjogren's if I pronounce it right. Um, I suffer from extreme dry eyes. I'm constantly rubbing my eyes. I use Restasis, but I was told that I have cataracts and I need surgery and I also have a floater. But I was wondering, since I'm constantly rubbing my eyes, I mean, if I, would I still be a candidate since I have dry eyes? And I would try to keep my hands away, of course. Um, I heard there was something, some other dry eye medicines that may work better than Restasis now, but I, I've never tried them. I would like to have LASIK surgery and have the cataracts removed, but I didn't know since I suffer from dry eyes if I would be a candidate. That's my question. Yeah, <clears throat> with, with dry is very common, and of course, Sjogren's syndrome, uh, we see that fairly commonly also, you know, and of course, that's a, that's a decrease in your overall tear film because it affects those glands that produce the tears. That's why Sjogren's patients just kind of dry out in general. 
Um, you know, it's autoimmune in nature. So a lot of times once the systemic uh, medications are used to treat it, that generally gets better. You know, of course, the first recommendation is to don't rub your eyes. Now, it, it, the rubbing the eyes, if they're itching, you know, and that's why you rub your eyes, then there's an allergy component to it. And of course, that's very treatable also. Um, if restasis, if you've been using it for a while and you still have dry eyes, restasis is not working. So it's one of those things where we would actually have to take a look at you and we can manage that based on what you need for the treatment of your type of dry eye. And there's a lot of things to do. Mm -hmm. um, for a Sjogren's patients, one of the simplest things is actually to increase the amount of artificial tears that you use. Now, all that being said, everybody's a candidate for cataract surgery. And so just because you have dry eye does not mean that you can't have cataract surgery. Uh, but there are two things that we, we look for uh, as far as the cataract surgery patient is concerned, and one of them is the health of your cornea, which the dry eye can affect that. And so aggressive treatment of the dry eye is going to be very important as far as your outcome is concerned. But also the diabetes, you know, we have to make sure that there's no diabetic retinopathy, uh, or if there is, mm -hmm. that it's well controlled. And those two things uh, will dictate what lens you are a candidate for. So you are a candidate for cataract surgery. It would just depend on which way you could go based on those two things. Okay. Well, I I have allergies too, so I've been using a lot of Patiday. It's over the counter now. Mm -hmm. Patiday for the itchiness, and we were hoping that would help. And then restasis for the dry eyes, and then. Often I use real tears and everything, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I couldn't get cataract. You know, I couldn't have surgery with all these drops I'm putting in my ears, so you're saying <laughs> I could. Well, absolutely. <laughs> so I'm not happy to hear that. Yeah, and it's Thank one of those things so where, you, obviously, we, like I said, the, you, have, you have to keep your fingers and everything else out of your eyes right after cataract surgery, so, you know, you would make sure you weren't rubbing. And, you know, because a lot of these things are inflammatory in nature as far as the dry eyes concerned, you know, after cataract surgery, uh, we have you on some steroid drops and anti-inflammatories for a while. So a lot of people for the first week or so are like, wow, my eye feels great. You know, and then of course as we taper those steroids down, it, that dry eye tends to flare up a little bit. Uh, and then we aggressively treat that. Because, you know, our goal is to make it to where you're just using your eyes, you're not thinking about them, whether it be your vision or the way they feel. Okay, well, great. You eased my mind on at least I, I do have hope. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's always hope, Thank you hope, so Mary. much, and, thank, <laughs> and thanks, Terry, You're welcome. for having such a, a good show. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Mary. We thank appreciate you, you, you watching. <laughs> All right. Y'all have a good day. All right. You too. Thank have you a nice too. weekend. I'll make my public service announcement now. So anybody who has dry eyes, and <laughs> of course, people with Sjogren's Syndrome, they don't produce very much tears, so you have to do a lot of things. But... There's maybe 50% of all people with dry eyes are not closing their eyes completely at night. Like, nobody talks about that. You know, drug companies don't make much money off of artificial tears and lubricants for nighttime drops. They're cheap, they're over the counter. But a lot of people's eyes, and this is more common the older you get, they're open like a millimeter at night and they dry out all night long. So you can put 10,000 artificial teardrops in during the day and you won't make up for the dryness that occurred all night and it's going to occur tomorrow night. So those people can use either like Cystane Gel or Cystane Overnight, which is a lubricant ointment. Anybody who uses a CPAP machine should absolutely use the ointment uh -huh. at night because you have blow-by, there's more airflow. That dries the eyes out at night. So people who have 
who have dryness that begins the moment they wake up, their lids are stuck to the surface of their eye or they're crusty in the morning, those people need nighttime lubrication. And a lot of times that totally solves the problem. So yeah. I, would, I would say to anybody who has dry eyes, try that first. I have to say that is one of the most valuable things and I think I've told you before, the longest we've been talking, for me personally, that was one of the most valuable things. I never even thought about that. Yeah, so it's using crazy. Those at night, it's crazy. So. Nobody okay. talks about it. Yeah. It solves the problem half the time. Okay. We have Betty on the line. Hi, Betty. What's your question? Oh, fine. How are you? We're good. What I'm calling for is uh, I had the surgery for my eyes in 2005, but they're getting now what I have to have glasses to read and I have never been able to drive at night with the new lenses. So that's interesting. Well 2005 that was a while ago and there weren't a lot of lens options in 2005 but you know just off the cuff I would say I think we've only got like a minute left here but I would say that the first thing we need to do is make sure you don't have a secondary cataract. You know if you haven't had that lasered off that'd be a slam dunk, that'd be the first move because everyone who has cataract surgery gets some degree of a secondary cataract and that's a film on the back of the lens implant that's placed at the time of surgery. The cataract is surrounded by a thin membrane called the capsule and we open up the anterior front portion of that capsule, take the cataract out through it, put the new lens implant inside that capsule and the, the back portion of the capsule remains intact and it wrinkles up. So. That can cause the same symptoms of a cataract and driving at night, having trouble with that is a, is a common symptom. You just laser a hole in it in the office, it takes about one minute to do. It's the most common procedure done after cataract surgery. So I'd check that first and then see if you have any refractive error and if we can make, get you better with glasses. That'd be the first thing I would look at. All right, that's wonderful. Betty, thank you for calling and thank you, Mary, and all of our other callers today. Thank you so much, doctors. I think we got it in your website real quick. Yep, thecataractsurgeons.com. All right, yeah. thanks again so much, everyone, for watching Healthline 3. We'll see you next time.